Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So here is what I think the problem with New Jersey. And I say this to be clear as someone who spent the first six or seven years of his life living in northern New Jersey. So I am, you know, I am a New Jerseyan myself, uh, at least when I was young. It's that when you drive on the turnpike in northern New Jersey, you just cannot avoid driving through industrial refining wastelands. And I feel like it's just very hard for any state to recover from that when like it's, millions it's and millions of, of visitors charm, to your city. <laughs> but it's it? the cell too, because the cell is itself the garden state. And then you're like driving through that. It's like the contrast <laughs> and expectation. Well, that's not the garden part of it, Scott. <laughs> well, they shouldn't call it the garden state highway then or whatever they call it. Turnpike. Parkway. Parkway. Thank you. I don't think anyone will defend the Garden State Parkway. But it does it does have some good rest stops. There's the Walt Whitman rest stop. There's a rest stop, uh, the Vince Lombardi rest stop, famously the site of a mob hit several decades ago. You know, there's all this beautiful, colorful local history. But the real question, though, is can you pump your own gas? Because a state that doesn't allow you to pump your own gas is not a serious state. It's about safety, Alan. (laughs) (laughs) The people of New Jersey are too dumb to be able. When I was learning how to drive, I had to go out of state to learn how to pump gas. I had to cross the (laughs) Pennsylvania border. Isn't that the stupidest thing you've ever heard? I would also find it more persuasive if most people who haven't tried to pump my gas in New Jersey weren't smoking a cigarette while they did it. That's the part that I find less. <laughs> you know, we like to live on the edge, Scott. You really do. All right. So we have in the pros column, we have uh, tomatoes, blueberries, and Italian food. Mm-hmm. We also have a state monster, the Jersey Devil. It lives oh, yeah. in the Pine Barrens. It has okay. cloven hooves. It will eat you. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Okay, so, so we have we have fruit, pizza, Italian food, the Jersey Devil, and on the other side, it is uh, stinky and you can't pump your own gas. I don't know, hard to say. The northern part of it is stinky. The northern part of it is stinky. And that's really just southern New York, if we're being honest. Ooh, Nobody can be sad if that part goes away. Shots fired. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security, the guy who nagged me. Alan, I'm talking about you <laughs> because I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I am here with my two other co-hosts of Rational Security 2.0, Alan Rosenstein. Hello, but what did I ever do to you? You know what you've done, Alan. <laughs> it's too many. You don't need to go into it here, but I you know. know. All, I know all the things I've done. I just don't know which specific thing. Exactly. Most of them involve nagging, <laughs> so it's fine. So it still works. <laughs> and my other co-host, Quentin Tudrasic. Hello. And we are reunited for you for what we are calling the Anniversary Eve edition. <laughs> because we are but one week shy of our one-year anniversary, and we are very excited about it. This is a day I am not sure, I was not sure would ever come. Uh, but I'm glad to get to celebrate it with the two of you. I was sure we were going to get canceled. Or just, you know, no one would They listen. haven't fired us yet. Thank you, audience, for sticking with us. 
Yeah, no kidding. Exactly. We'll do more of that next week when we actually get to the the one year anniversary, and then we're done. Then we're done. <laughs> no, just kidding. Well, we're still coming back. We're going out with a bang, that. everyone. We're going out with a bang. Um, but this week we have a couple of notable national security stories in the headlines. Uh, different topics we've been talking about the last few weeks to mix it up a little bit. A little bit of a old school national security flavor on these, I think. Um, that we're going to talk about with the three of us. Enjoy a little alone time, a little time before our big celebration next week uh, with just the three of us. Our first topic for this week, the other, other nuclear option. Hostilities in Ukraine are getting perilously close to the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, with each side accusing the other of recklessly pursuing military activities in its vicinity. The IAEA is sending in a team to help secure the site, but what difference can the international community really make? Does it need to pursue a different type of response? Topic two, biting the hand that retweets you. A new report indicates that Meta and Twitter have taken down a network of accounts associated with a pro-Western information operation critical of China, Russia, and Iran. Should the United States and its allies be engaging in these sorts of activities, how should social media platforms be treating them? Topic three, fixing the CivCash mismatch. The Defense Department has rolled out a long-awaited new policy aimed at finally accomplishing an objective that many have long agreed on in principle, but few have agreed on how to prioritize, reducing civilian casualties from U.S. military operations. What does this new policy do, and is it likely to work? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So there's been a great deal of news when it comes to the Russian war in Ukraine recently, and we're going to focus on one corner of that, uh, which has to do with the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which is on the bank of the Dnieper River, and appears to have been under some threat from Russia, although Russia also says that Ukraine has been attacking the plant as well. There have been real concerns in Ukraine about what might happen um, if the plant is, is damaged. I know there's been reports that Ukrainians who lived in the region uh, have had iodine pills distributed to them by the government in case of nuclear fallout. Obviously, Ukraine has uh, plenty of experience with dealing with this kind of thing. And because in part of these concerns about what's happening with the plant, the International Atomic Energy Agency, which I think has one of the hardest to pronounce acronyms, IAEA, is sending uh, a team to cross the front line and inspect the facility for safety reasons, which in itself sounds like a pretty exciting mission. Um, so there are a lot of different threads here. Um, frankly, my first question is, you know, we, we saw early in the war, I think, concerns that Russia was targeting nuclear power plants early on. There was also there was an occupation of the Chernobyl facility. My impression had been that Russia had kind of backed away from that precisely because it was so dangerous. Is this a, a change in tactic on their part or am I wrong and they've just been doing this all along despite the dangers? Either Scott or Alan, I'm curious for your thoughts. Well, so my understanding of the status quo of this site is that it's still contested. Uh, we have a situation where, by my understanding, although correct me if I'm wrong on this, the territory around the plant is occupied mostly by Russian forces, but it's currently being contested as part of this new offensive the Ukrainians are launching, although there's some dispute as to whether it's actually started or not yet to try and push and take back parts of the southeast. The site's being still run by Ukrainian staff. Who are still working there, but kind of under Russian supervision. And so I, that's my understanding of the status quo as we speak. The challenge is, is that both forces, both sides of this conflict have these military objectives, legitimate or not, but what they see as military objectives in the vicinity. They have forces stationed there uh, in the territory nearby the plant. 
there have been allegations of Russians launching attacks from relatively close to the plant that the Ukrainians then feel like they have to respond to for military necessity reasons, even though they recognize and are probably more aware than anyone of the real risks to the Ukrainian populace around this site if the something were to go wrong very seriously at the nuclear power plant. Um, and it's worth noting, this is a very, very big nuclear power plant. Uh, this is the biggest one in Europe. It is one of the 10 biggest ones in the world. Um, and so it has a lot of potential to go very wrong, even compared to other kind of comparable sites in the region and in the world. Uh, and so for that reason, it, it's in this very dodgy situation. This is why both sides are able to each blame the other for endangering the plant because they actually both are engaged in legitimate military activities, or maybe not legitimate, but actual military activities close to the vicinity of the plant um, and maybe even engage in a, even a higher, more intense level of conflict in the days and weeks to come. Yeah, I, I agree with Scott that this is tricky. And I, I think it's tricky in a way that ultimately favors the Russians rather than the Ukrainians slash the West for, for a couple of reasons. You know, First, this is a Ukrainian power plant on Ukrainian soil. So if there were to be an accident, the area that would be at least initially most impacted is Ukrainian land. Um, so in that sense, that immediately has to make the Ukrainians a little more cautious. You know, second, nuclear accidents are, I think, one of the relatively few things that could turn Western and in particular Western European public opinion against the Ukrainians. And if not against the Ukrainians entirely, then against the sort of really vigorous support they've received so far. And frankly, even if that accident were to be caused by the Russians, Though in the context of a war, you know, it's hard to say when you have an accident who exactly caused it because it's an outcome of both sides shooting at each other, um, you know, even if we can say fairly that the Russians are ultimately responsible for all of this. I, I think that could still put those who are less enamored of supporting Ukraine, especially again in Western Europe, um, they put them in a stronger rhetorical position. You know, honestly, we've been talking a lot about the danger of uh, nuclear escalation in this conflict. And obviously, for good reasons, we talk about Russia's potential use of tactical nuclear weapons. But it strikes me that, honestly, a intentional or accidental incident at one of these nuclear power plants is actually more likely to be a source of nuclear escalation. It's obviously a different kind. But in some sense, the, the specter of nuclear is the specter of nuclear, and it freaks people out for understandable reasons. And, and then finally, and maybe this is a little speculative, but I think it's also important, it, it seems increasingly clear that from a long-term climate change perspective, nuclear energy has to be part of the mix. You know, you're even seeing that in places like Germany, which have been really aggressively anti-nuclear, but are actually pulling back on those plans to shuttle their own uh, nuclear facilities because of their climate change goals. And anything that casts nuclear power, again, in this negative light of, oh man, when you have a nuclear power plant, it can explode, especially when people shoot at it, again, is another long-term thing that I think the West cares about more than Russia does. So honestly, it, it strikes me, and we'll see if the Ukrainians can recapture it then, you know, without anything happening, then that's obviously a big victory. But it strikes me that the Russian control of, of the Zaporizhia plant and just generally the, the fear of Ukrainian power plants uh, failing or exploding or whatever, having an accident during this war is, is one of Russia's actually biggest points of leverage. So are we just then extraordinarily lucky that nothing bad has happened so far? I was reading accounts by Ukrainian workers. I think one one worker who was a, at the Zaporizhia plant eventually left Ukraine. It sounded like the working conditions are 
pretty rough. Is it a stroke of luck that nothing bad has happened? You know, what what are the odds essentially? Like is the is the fact that the IAEA is heading in there a sign that we're hurtling toward catastrophe or is it that there is a very small likelihood of something very bad happening? I, I mean, I think the issue is that a very small likelihood of something very, very bad happening is, if it's bad enough, the same as hurtling towards catastrophe, right? I mean, the whole point is that that one identifies or one evaluates the risk, not just based on its probability, but also on its on its magnitude. You know, it, it, I do think that it is still ultimately within in Russia's interest not to let this plant have a giant meltdown. And you know, in addition, there are all sorts of nuclear accidents that are substantially less than a full Chernobyl or Fukushima style meltdown, explosion, radiation contamination everywhere, right? You know, if a, if a, a mortar shell hit a spent fuel storage facility and had some nuclear exposure um, as a result, that would be a real nuclear accident, but, you know, that wouldn't be the same as if the power plant exploded. So I, th- I think it's important not to, not to view this as a binary, you know, either, either there's no nuclear accident or the power plant's going to explode. But in that respect, yeah, I mean, I do think we are pretty lucky that nothing too bad has happened. I, you know, I'm kind of just curious why the uh, IEA Oh God, you're right. I I, have, I can't say it. Aia, I'm just gonna, Aia. Uh, why 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 the agency hasn't sent in folks before? Whether it's because they didn't view the risk as as high enough, or whether it wasn't safe before. Um, you know why why now? You know, I I think there's actually a really interesting case study here, and it's something that I've seen in a few other comparable circumstances that I happen to have a slice of vision on. You know, another comparison that's really interesting to me is the approach to particularly Mosul Dam, uh, a major dam in Iraq that there was a major concern would be compromised by military activities around it, um, both in 2003 and in the initial invasion of Iraq by the United States and its allies, and then in 2014, 2015 with the counter-ISIS campaign both times. And it presented this major kind of strategic question uh, about like how do we build this into our strategic calculus here it's kind of unique because probably even more so than with ISIS, I would guess, although who, who knows exactly, even ISIS, I think, acknowledge that there's a real problem here potentially in letting this dam just collapse or be blown up. The Russians certainly seem to be aware that there's like a risk to both sides that if something were to go wrong here, like we actually saw like a little bit of a working arrangement eventually get worked out at this plant under the Russian, Russian occupation where they were bringing in Ukrainian staff and apparently like letting them more or less do their jobs. I'm sure under a lot of duress and stress, and there are certainly a lot of accounts of staff being injured in military activities in the surrounding area in the same way that a lot of Ukrainian civilians are being injured or killed um, by these military activities. There's at least some acknowledgement of that. And my guess is that's why the IAEA may be chose this movement to step in because there seemed to be a moment of opportunity where both sides seemed to acknowledge, yeah, we need some mechanism for stepping down or coming up with some sort of deconfliction rules around the site as the conflict ramps up in this area uh, and it becomes more contested, as seems likely in the near future, that systems that they've kind of informally worked out is likely to come under more pressure. And the IAEA might actually have a, a moment here to to kind of shine in a way or to play a role as this interlocutor facilitating this kind of, you know, again, deconfliction around the site if they're able to do that. And also more, perhaps more importantly, even like actually monitoring the site. So any unintended damage it suffers, they can address and mitigate and make sure they can get access technicians and things like that. So, so I actually think it's an interesting case study about the role these specialized agencies can play around 
these very specific issues that sometimes arise in armed conflict where there appears to be even a fair amount of acknowledgement on both sides of there being a, a not entirely zero-sum game uh, in this sort of exchange. Uh, so so I'm really interested to see how, how this plays out, also keeping my fingers crossed that we don't end up with the worst case outcome, which is definitely still a possibility. So I actually have a follow-up question for you on that, Scott. And it is, in your experience and you know, your understanding of when this has been done in the past, have these sorts of limited, I'm not even sure I want to call them cooperation, but you know, limited interactions between combatants for infrastructure, have they ever served as an anchor around you, which you can build a larger move towards a truce between these actors? I'm not so naive as to be an optimist um, about you know, the war in Ukraine. But I, I do wonder if there's a scenario in which, um, especially if there's can be some, you know, MO developed between the two sides with respect to the power plant, that can then serve as a way that each side can back off a little bit while still keeping face because each side can say, look, it, you know, we went to war, but this war started getting real scary for everybody. And it actually was in everybody's interest, given that there are nuclear power plants involved to back off a little bit, and even if that isn't really the case. Um, I mean, you know, query whether that is compatible with Ukrainian President Zelensky's aggressive, and I think rightly so, posture in trying to put the Russians on the kind of back foot after six months of this war. Um, but I, I, I don't know. Hope springs eternal. Yeah, you know, I, I I don't know enough about case studies in this domain to say category. Nothing jumps to mind as to anything leading to like a broader like peace sort of negotiation, although that is like, you know, a classic kind of model towards facilitating like negotiated solutions is just like you just start negotiating around technical functional things to the extent you can at lower levels, building up those chains of communication, and then hoping that those lines of communication open up other ways to deconflict and find, uh, you know, shared interest or at least non-zero sum game sort of situations. I do think it might be something closer to the latter you're describing in that, again, both sides seem to recognize like there is actually a point of concern here that they both share. Uh, I think for Ukrainians, probably more than the Russians. I think you're right about that. But still, Russians seem at least to accept that there's a substantial risk for them as well here. And so they both might welcome some degree of intervention or international involvement as a mechanism of both being able to step down without completely ceding the ground to the other side. Uh, essentially, you know, perhaps having no the Russians having knowledge that if they cede some of the territory around the plant, it won't be used for military purposes by the Ukrainians or vice versa. Now, so far, it's worth noting the Russians have said they're not open to a demilitarized zone around the nuclear plant that has been proposed. I think the Ukrainians have expressed they're open to it. The Russians aren't. But, uh, you know, that's an opening position. I think we're going to see more dialogue around this, particularly as the offensive heats up, uh, if that is, in fact, what, what the Ukrainians have planned, as many suspect. And, and, you know, we'll see where it goes from there. But it is an interesting role for this international body, a very specialized one with a very narrow set of interests, can help facilitate that sort of outcome that has broader policy equity and I don't think it's impossible that that same channel can then be used to maybe approach deconfliction or conflict reduction in other contexts as well, although I doubt it's going to turn the conflict one way or another. So, Scott, I know that you had thoughts as well about sort of where this falls in terms of international law and the, the law of war, given that obviously attacking a nuclear power plant is very bad for everybody involved. And yet there's kind of an, an ambiguity about is this a military target? Is the, you know, where, where does this stand? Do you want to talk about that a little? Yeah, it is actually this really interesting kind of like lacuna in the law of armed conflict, where essentially you have very general rules that say, look, you're not supposed to pursue military activity where I'm, I'm 
stating this very broadly, but in the broadest possible terms, they're not supposed to pursue military activity except where the military advantage it yields you uh, exceeds substantially the cost to civilians, right? Um, so there's this kind of balancing act already in um, the law of armed conflict that a lot of states and parties over the years have pointed to and said, well, this means that it's like, really, you shouldn't be taking high risk military activities against around these high risk sites because the risk to the civilian population always or in the vast majority of cases will almost always outweigh the military advantages because the cost of civilians is so high. Um, it's actually a similar argument people say about why nuclear weapons like might be, uh, and some people's views are illegal under international law. The other side uh, of this, though, is that there have occasionally been efforts to kind of outlaw more categorically or with more specificity limits on attacking facilities like this. And actually, the United States has been one of the countries that's objected to them in the past. Um, the United States has taken the view, as frankly it often does with these kind of law of armed conflict standards, that it's taken a a more permissive view of a lot of, arm, lot of law of armed conflict rules saying, look, I mean, yeah, we think in the vast majority of cases, the balancing test says this would be an inappropriate thing to do. But there might be genuine situations where the military necessity really warrants this sort of action in taking out a nuclear power plant, for example. Uh, and so we can't, we, don't, we are hesitant to embrace categorical rules that prohibit that. So that was actually an issue with the two additional protocols to the Geneva Convention, or AP1, AP2, both of which have provisions that kind of suggest a more almost categorical, if not categorical prohibition on this sort of thing. The United States objected to it, particularly in the context of international armed conflicts, state to state armed conflicts, which is something that has historically really been at the top of uh, American legal law of armed conflict thinkers kind of minds because of the Cold War context in which a lot of the stuff was negotiated. It's kind of interesting to me. I think the fact that you see this role for the IAEA, you see this mutual agreement around this. And frankly, the point that you made, Alan, that nuclear power plants and frankly, general infrastructure generally is just such a major more point of concern now than it ever was even 20 or 30 years ago. Like we have much more vulnerable infrastructure systems because they are so much more efficient and centralized and handle such high volume. I have to ask myself if maybe there's more room now and acceptance now or openness to a stronger prohibition on types of military activity targeting those things. You see that actually in the cyberspace, interestingly, where critical infrastructure is really made kind of a big no-no in the cyberspace. And people say, oh, this is the equivalent of a much more serious armed attack on us. It's interesting. We don't really see quite the same uh, approach taking place in more conventional armed conflict contexts. But but maybe that just means it's because it's states haven't been encountering it that often. And as it happens more and more often, they may be more open to it. Well, let us go from uh, a situation of some arguably questionable uh, military activities some parties may be considering in the context of Ukraine and move to some other questionable activities that may be happening in our own backyard. Because we received a copy of, not just us, the world received a copy of an interesting report from the Stanford Internet Observatory and some partner groups in the last week, detailing a really interesting set of activities that Meta and Twitter, two of, our, of course, our biggest social media platforms, appear to have encountered and taken action against recently. And that is one of these large networked efforts at disinformation operations involving fake accounts coordinated efforts, coordinated lobbying efforts, misrepresentation about the identity of the people presenting certain messages that had politically loaded terms intended to impact some sort of political calculus somewhere, presumably. But unlike other accounts, other situations we're much more familiar with, where these are, for example, Russian efforts targeting uh, American uh, democratic efforts or Chinese efforts targeting American commercial activities, these appear to have been pro-Western efforts, pro-US, pro-US ally efforts 
aimed at building criticism of China, Russia, and Iran and some of their policies. Meta and Twitter appear to have taken these down categorically the same way with kind of a neutral application of the rules that it applies to for taking down similar operations kind of on the other side. But I think this raises a lot of really interesting questions. First, is this the sort of thing that the United States should be engaging in? Are we surprised by this or not surprised? And then should social media platforms really be engaging them on such neutral grounds as they do these other activities by other state actors, um, given I guess the the value set perhaps or policy interests behind some of these activities and the fact that these are predominantly American companies. Quinta, let me hand it over to you first to get us started on that. So I think before we dive in more, it's important to clarify that we don't know how much, if any, involvement by the U.S. government there was here. And credit to the folks at Grafica and the Stanford Information Observatory who put out a big report on this. I think they're admirably clear about the ambiguities. So Twitter and Meta said with varying degrees of confidence, I think uh, one company said that the uh, activity appeared to be based in the U.S. The other said it was probably based in the U.S. or something like that. There are some kind of weird overlaps between this activity and an overt information campaign that the U.S. was running. And I think uh, it was initially reported on in, in 2012 and is no longer active. So there were this is a, a program by the U.S. military to put out information favorable to the United States in the Middle East around involving operations there. Um, some of the links that were promoted by this network sort of traced back to links that were developed as part of that effort. And I think that uh, the Grafka SIO report identifies at least one account where somebody was pretending to be an Iraqi citizen who had previously said that they had uh, they were involved with the U.S. military in, in some way. So there's definitely enough to raise questions. Um, I don't think we have any answers. There was a comment uh, that I saw from a Pentagon official in Wall Street Journal reporting on it saying that uh, uh, we will look into and assess any information that Facebook or Twitter provide. So there, there's a question mark for you. I will say I think this report is really notable and interesting precisely because it is, I think, one of the, if not the first example of an operation like this based in the U.S. that is pro-U.S. being identified and taken down. There are precious few examples of Western democracies engaging in this kind of behavior. The big exception here is uh, another Grafica report that came out, um, I think in 2020, identifying a French information covert information operation in uh, West Africa in 2019-2020, which France uh, did not apologize for and uh, later went on to explain that they actually thought that you know running information operations was a potentially strategically important component of their their military, and they they have a you know little explanation up that you can find about under what circumstances that kind of activity would be justified. Um, so I will certainly be keeping an eye out to see whether or not <laughs> this ends up being tied to the U.S. government. If it is, I think it raises a lot of honestly troubling questions um, about the extent to which the U.S. government can or should be involved in that kind of activity, given how aggressive the government has been in pushing back against just this kind of thing when it's coming from states like Russia. Yeah. So I, I, I'm going to take a, maybe a, a weird position that I think that the U.S. and more generally Western or liberal societies, right? I have no problem with Korea or Japan want to do this too. 
that the US and other liberal democracies should absolutely do this to the extent they think that it is tactically or strategically useful, right? It, it's always hard to know what the effects of these are. It's you know, hard to run RCTs. There's not like, it's hard to do experiments, it's hard to know exactly what this sort of stuff accomplishes, but let's assume it is accomplishing something. If it's not accomplishing anything, then it's kind of, then it's an easy answer. But let's assume it's actually accomplishing something useful. I think that simultaneously, the US and its allies should absolutely do it. And also that American companies should absolutely be on the lookout for it and try to stop it. And I think it's the only equilibrium that is remotely sustainable. On the US side doing it, I think it's very hard for the US and the liberal world to kind of unilaterally disarm, as it were, given that Russia, China, other actors will continue to do this, and that it's going to be very hard to get them to stop. Um, this is not the sort of thing where, you know, an arms control treaty makes a ton of sense. We've never been able to, you know, outlaw espionage. We're not going to be able to outlaw stuff like this either, I think. You know, I also don't mind the charge of hypocrisy because I just think there's a difference between liberal and non-liberal regimes, right? Um, I'm just comfortable saying that some things are okay when the good guys do it, um, and it's not okay when the bad guys do it. Now, that's going to lead to charges of hypocrisy, but I'm not sure that it's the hypocrisy that is driving, let's say, Russia to do disinformation versus that it's just in their strategic interest to do so. Now, at the same time, I think that for purely tactical reasons, the U.S. and its allies should not get a free hand when they do this with respect, you know, from American companies, Western companies, you know, companies that are are housed in liberal democratic states. You know, it's interesting, Quinty, you mentioned that, you know, these are mostly American companies or sorry, I think it was Scott. So, so someone mentioned that these are mostly American companies. And, and it's like in some sense, yes. But in other senses, I'm not even sure what kind of company Twitter or Google or Apple is, right? They're these like giant multinationals that run the universe. So it's an interesting question to what extent they are American companies. I mean, sure, they're incorporated in California for the most part. So I guess that makes them American. But more generally, I just think that they would lose so much credibility if they were not seen as aggressively being neutral, in fact. Uh, so there's like a tension in my account because I think substantively it's totally fine if the good guys do things that the bad guys aren't allowed to do. But I do think it's important if people want Twitter to continue to be viewed as a trusted platform around the world such that you can actually successfully use uh, misinformation and disinformation uh, through Twitter. Twitter has to be seen actually opposing U.S. efforts to exploit its services. Um, and the best way for Twitter to be seen to be an opponent of the U.S.'s campaigns is to actually be such an opponent. Um, I, I may be veering a little bit into nine-dimensional chess um, or my attempt at nine-dimensional chess. I can, I can barely play two-dimensional chess, but that, that is my, my rat-sec hot take. But chess is three-dimensional, Alan. No, it's not. Third, it's two-dimensional. third dimension is time. Oh, in, in all seriousness. Lord. <laughs> Wah, I do boo. think that... <laughs> Also, if you've ever stepped on a chess piece, believe me, there's a third dimension and it hurts. <laughs> it's the, the pointy dimension. Look, it's it's me doing it is a time-honored, you know, ethical provision that has guided many people throughout the centuries. In all seriousness, I do think, I don't think that, you know, this is a kind of standard issue should we be pragmatic or should we hold true to our morals dispute. I actually think it's more complicated because my worry is that if 
the United States and other democracies around the world were to engage in this kind of activity, um, it's not refusing to unilaterally disarm. I worry that it undermines all of the other things that you're trying to do. So as an example, um, one of the main arguments that you see Russia make about its information operations around the world and things like, you know, sending out propaganda over RT and then restricting other uh, free Western outlets on the grounds that, you know, they're just state propaganda from even, you know, if they're broadcasting from within states that don't have state controlled media. The argument that is made by the people sort of running these things on the Russian side is everyone does this, you know, where you're, you are being hypocritical by calling us on it. And I do worry that there is an extent to which getting down in that mud pit, even if you are doing it because you're the good guys, gives the people on the other side a great deal more credibility in saying everyone engages in this kind of activity. We're just doing exactly what they were doing. And that those, you know, those arguments do have sway with people. Like that really does matter. And so I suppose in a way what I'm making is, again, the kind of, you know, be, be careful when you look into the abyss, lest the abyss also look unto you, right? Um, that <laughs> listeners, Alan's, Alan's making a magical wiggly fingers. Yeah. So, but, but that there really is an extent to which your assertion that you're the good guy depends on what it is that you do and that it makes it harder to make that argument not only to you know yourself internally domestically but also to other countries around the globe right like a lot of these information operations are taking place you know the 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 operations described in the Graphica report are taking place uh in Iran Afghanistan elsewhere in Central Asia you know in sort of countries that are perhaps not particularly predisposed to like the United States and that it can make it a great deal harder um, for the U.S. to kind of come in with a moral message and say, we are different from Russia, we are a democracy, um, if they're engaging in that, that kind of behavior. So ultimately, I just worry that it's self-defeating. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Yeah, and I'll, I'll layer on top of Quinta's comments with which I agree with with one additional angle, which is the legal and norm generative angle of this. There is a very credible 
international legal basis for saying these information sites or operations, particularly the sort launched by Russia aimed at U.S. democratic activities, are violations of international law, in my view, or at least in serious tension with international law, with obligations not to interfere with the autonomy uh, and integrity of foreign states. Usually the kind of reserve democratic activities is something that you see states are not supposed to be intervening or interfering with each other. Now, this is a constant source of tension for a lot of countries over human rights. You see a lot of countries saying, oh, you can't critique my human rights record. That is a matter of my internal affairs. You're violating my sovereignty. Foreign diplomats get out, foreign NGOs get out, be quiet, silence, et cetera. And there, there's this debate about, well, that's not really an area of your sovereignty. You've made international human rights obligations. That's why we are allowed to comment and start commenting on this area. Nobody else is giving away democratic rights. If anything, like international human rights obligations and other international treaties reinforce democratic governance and democratic norms, even in undemocratic countries. So, you know, I, I think there's a good case that it's okay to be proactive and vocally openly if you are a country encouraging compliance with human rights obligations, civil liberties obligations, other international legal obligations of foreign governments. I guess if you want to do it openly as a other government, if the state doesn't prohibit you, if Russia wanted to run a, you know, article in Washington Post and buy out a page saying don't vote for Joe Biden, and that were not contrary to US domestic law, I don't know if that'd be a problem either. I think it actually is contrary to US domestic law, but but I don't think that would be a problem either. The issue here is the fact that you're doing this surreptitiously. You're really in, in a zone where, in a way, that's not clearly like maybe this stuff is aimed at promoting human rights obligations, and therefore, maybe it has a better international legal argument behind it. But it doesn't seem like it, at least in all these cases that are kind of suggested in this report, like certainly like, you know, Iran, there's a lot of legit objections to what Iran is doing, but a lot of the activities around, you know, nuclear activity, things like that, you know, international legal critiques of that are, are a little more complicated. Uh, and so, you know, if you really want to build up a norm to say, hey, like we shouldn't be doing these sorts of interfering, really core interfering with how each other's dem democratic systems operate, like which I think is a good norm to operate. And one, the United States historically hasn't always respected, but I actually think has done a better job of the last 20 or 30 years and should continue to do a good job of, you know, these sorts of activities kind of run counter to that. Now, that's a reason why the United States probably is never going to acknowledge that it did this if it was behind it. It was probably a if covert activity, right? And the United States, there's always this struggle saying, well, how when is the trade-off? When do we do something? We do think that are covert precisely because we know they run in tension with our other public stances and how we're trying to develop state behavior. So we're not going to acknowledge it or admit it, but we're going to do it anyway. And, and what are the trade-offs there? I don't know what the right answer there is in this case. Maybe there's a case to be made for certain limited covert applications of these, these activities. But in this environment where you're really encouraging and pressuring these platforms to develop tools for detecting them and removing them, it's going to be really hard to effectively do any of this covertly. Uh, and that seems to weigh really, really strongly against the idea that you can get away with this because there is this cost of being exposed in it in terms of you're undermining the ability to build the norms to prohibit this sort of behavior. And in the long run, you know, I think that that is worth kind of cultivating. I, I will also note just as a one technical point, the, the French operation that Quinta noted earlier the French actually came out and acknowledged what they were doing. And they basically said, this is an extension of conventional informational operations that are allowed during times of armed conflict in an armed conflict context. I, I think I'm getting this all secondhand because I haven't gotten to sit down and actually read. My French is takes some time for me to work through technical things. I, re I read the write-up uh, through Google Translate, so that That's makes two perfect. of us. I may ask you for that, yeah, because I couldn't quite get the whole thing to pop into Google Translate before, before we recorded. But that that's my understanding from my quick read of it, what they're kind of justifying. That actually makes sense to me. There's a space for information operations in law of armed conflict. It's like just 
a weird lex specialis sort of a way of approaching this that's a little different. But most of these countries aren't countries we're in an armed conflict with. In fact, we quite openly state, state the opposite. Iran's maybe like the hardest case, but China and Russia, we're very clear we're not in armed conflict with these countries. So you can't resort to that sort of same framework. And outside of that context, I think it's much harder to justify. Yeah. So I, look, I, I'm... I'm being a little bit provocative because, you know, it's rat second. It's fun to be. And so I take all, all you know, both of your points very seriously. You know, I, I do think a lot, I think the, one of the problems is that a lot hinges on one of the things that Scott said near the end of his remarks uh, just now, which is, well, there are probably some cases where it's worth doing things covertly because the benefit outweighs the costs of norm building and um, all that sort of stuff. And, and And that to me seems to be the critical question. You know, how do you figure out what those situations are. Because it's not as if the United States only engages in covert activities from time to time, right? It's a huge part of what we do. And, you know, not just, you know, kinetic uh, covert activities, but just an enormous amount of uh, attempts to influence other countries' politics. And, you know, obviously that has gotten the CIA and other parts of the intelligence community into, into trouble in the past. And, you know, many of those were done to support pretty repressive regimes and may have backfired, may not have been effective. And to be clear, it's not even clear that this information operation was at all effective. You know, we shouldn't run into the, fall into the trap of, of saying, oh, it's an information operation on the internet. It must have changed everyone's mind, right? This might've just been totally incompetent. Um, but again, it's kind of more interesting just to assume that it did something useful. Otherwise, there's not that much to talk about. And I just, I don't know why we should necessarily draw the line here, um, but still allow espionage and other forms of covert uh, influence. Um, maybe there's something special about this. Maybe we've always been, frankly, too uh, forward-leaning on uh, covert operations. And it would have been better if, you know, since the end of World War II, we just stopped doing this sort of stuff. There's a danger in treating this as so fundamentally different from all the other stuff we've done in the past. And without defending all the other stuff that we've done in the past, I'm just not convinced that it's quite as different. The other thing I, I want to say, and this is really just a question in, in case you two have, have a thought on this, you know, we've been talking about this very much from the kind of practical realpolitik angle, right? Which is, is this really worth it? Does it undermine other goals we're trying to build? Is, you know, all that sort of stuff, which I do think is, you know, ultimately the most tractable way to think about it. But there is a moral question here, which is, is it appropriate to use the global public digital commons for this sort of activity? Uh, if you are the good guys, as it were, right? If what you are promoting is liberal democracy rather than authoritarianism. I, I will say I, I am kind of searching my intuitions and I am untroubled by this. Obviously, it's better if you can convince people openly to you know, vote for, for the right side. But I think in some cases, the, the covert nature may be justifiable. And I'm, I'm curious what you all, if you, if you share my moral intuition here, or if you think there's something really morally objectionable and just not being honest and not saying, you know, this this bot was was paid for by the United States government and it, it approves of its message. I yeah, I gotta say I'm my instincts are violently in the other direction. I just I you know, predictably so. I, I just think that it undercuts what the argument that the United States would be making is about why it is the good guy <laughs> and and what what makes it different. And I do think that Look, a lot of the the conversation around disinformation and misinformation around from the last six or so years has been, I would argue, kind of 
overstated and over-dramatized, but I do think it cuts to very real anxieties about what it means to exist as a a member of a public space in which information is distributed and what what we mean when we think about agency and participation in those spaces. And that that anxiety there, I think that kind of moral instinct that there's something wrong here is worth paying attention to, even as we should and are, I think, being more careful about, you know, not exaggerating the extent to which this kind of stuff has an effect and, and so on and so forth. So it just, I really feel like there is a it's it's not necessarily a slippery slope argument, maybe just like a, a fall off a cliff. <laughs> uh, it just it strikes me that there there is something that just inherently undercuts the entire argument that you are making about why you are different if you begin engaging in this kind of activity. That being said, obviously France disagrees. Well, let's go from one controversial U.S. policy to another controversial U.S. policy, though maybe becoming less controversial because moving in the right direction. Uh, Last week, the Defense Department announced a new comprehensive plan to limit civilian deaths in uh, U.S. military operations. Um, And this came in the wake of a lot of things, uh, but in particular, a uh, Pulitzer Prize winning series in The New York Times, uh, headed by Columbia journalism professor uh, Osmond Khan, that reported uh, a remarkable set of findings, Uh, not only the extent of civilian deaths due to American military activity, an extent that was uh, often much larger than the military publicly acknowledged, but also just how often the military didn't even know what was happening, didn't itself have a good handle on who was dropping bombs on. Uh, This made quite a stir. Uh, Like I said, it won the Pulitzer Prize and appears to have made a pretty big impact within DOD itself. Um, Obviously not the only thing that led to this new policy, but uh, uh, one of the the kind of many uh, pieces of reportage and analysis that has culminated in this. You know, I also want to plug a post that went up uh, on Lawfare on Monday that goes into depth uh, about this policy and kind of as a point by point uh, analysis of it. But in lieu of that post, um, Scott, let me start with you. What are the main points of this plan and how big of a change is it from past practice? Well, if it gets fully implemented as it lays itself out, I think it's a pretty dramatic change and, and a good one, certainly from the perspective of people who have been advocating for these sorts of policies and support them. And I would put myself in that in that camp generally. What we see here is really a systematic effort to really seriously deal with this problem. Up until really the last 15 years, 10 years, we really saw the military approach this as part of a big matrix, this question of civilian casualties, I should say, as part of a big matrix of different consideration that go into targeting decisions. It was one of the factors that had to be taken into consideration, but there's a whole lot of judgment call that goes into those sorts of decisions on the field. Um, you know, Field commanders sometimes have the opportunity to consult JAGs on them on legal issues, but even the legal issues hinge on facts that are open to a lot of subjective assessment. And so there is a... I think as anybody who's worked in any sort of bureaucracy might understand, there is a, a a tendency for institutional drift or institutional focus as, you know, a particular set of limitations on civilian casualties becomes more restrictive towards achieving one's more direct military objectives, which is the main thing military officers are responsible for. Those metrics for evaluating civilian casualties tend to slide um, and they can lead to pretty horrible outcomes. Even when actors at least think they're pursuing these things in good faith, think they're taking them seriously, and then try and pursue an effort, perhaps even to investigate them after the fact, but 
it's not adequately resourced, if they don't have appropriate methodology, they don't have people trained how to do it, not that effective. So this really systematically tries to get at this. It sets up a, a permanent kind of body in the Defense Department that's going to look at this, going to train people to do these sorts of investigations. It's going to build them systematically into targeting decisions, both at a training level and at an operational level, basically kind of encouraging them to, I think, Red team is is one way it's kind of described in the report. Uh, second guess a lot of these decisions. This role that Jags often play, but this is kind of giving people who are a little maybe outside of the normal conventional chain of command and responsibility the opportunity to give a little bit of uh, more independent insight and criticism of certain decisions being made. Perhaps more importantly, it also really lays out a systematic means of collecting information. Um, right now, there's actually not even systematized data around civilian casualties across different combatant commands, which are kind of like the geographic hubs of US military activity or other components. And I don't know what the intelligence community does, but I suspect it's also very different from what DOD does. And so it's really hard to really evaluate like which tactics works, which ones don't. There's been a very, very active uh, and vocal NGO community really actually working closely with a lot of people in the Defense Department for many years trying to build out some apparatus for better doing this um, because there are private NGOs, international organizations, and elements in the military itself that have been empowered at different times or less empowered at other times that have developed methods for doing this more effectively. And so this really does take a number of steps, it seems like, to implement those things. The number one criticism it's gotten, that it got kind of off the bat from some media critiques. Uh, Politico in particular ran an article that kind of, this was the headline, which I think a lot of people took issue with pretty reasonably, basically saying, hey, it doesn't really talk about numbers or staffing or any of these sorts of concrete decisions, which are true and correct, but it, it lays out a process for getting at those with Congress, with the combatant command. You have to like kind of go through the process of building those positions, getting them funded, getting them filled, training people to fill them. And so it's not so easy just to say, oh, we're going to have 100 people do this in the kind of DOD process. It, instead, it lays out a multi-year sort of plan for getting there. And, you know, again, if it sticks, this has the potential to be, I think, a really significant development. Certainly a lot of people in the advocacy community have really stepped forward and welcomed it. I think the big question is, can it stick and can you embed these interests and perspectives institutionally? Can you embed them strongly enough that they will persevere even in a moment where we're, you know, for example, engaged in hot conflicts where there's a lot more pressure to advance military objectives and these other priorities sometimes slip? Because uh, that's where we've seen civilian casualties spike in the past and, and, and you know, your ability to limit that hinges on your ability to build institutions that resist that shifting of perspective and priorities. Scott, I'm I'm curious. Do you do you think that reflecting on your comment about whether this will stick, do do you think that this policy, you know, might be effective for the sort of quote unquote low intensity conflicts that we've been engaging in for quite some time? But you know, if we ever get into a shooting war with China, no, no one's going to care about this, um, and that this is fundamentally a strategy that is more appropriate to, you know, like I said, low intensity conflicts or or well maybe from our perspective, low intensity, not from the perspective of the people on the ground and, and not for the sort of larger conflicts that, you know, might occur if China invades Taiwan or, you know, Russia sends a missile on to, into Poland. So that's kind of the classic critique of a lot of these civilian casualty oriented uh, policies that basically say, look, I mean, part of the reason we're able to focus so much on civilian casualties in low intensity conflicts is because you can wait for moments of opportunity to strike and you can 
monitor your target like they did, you know, with Azawahiri just a couple of weeks ago for months on end, waiting for the exact moment to hit them when you can minimize civilian casualties. You can't do that in a conventional shooting war against a, you know, a, a symmetric peer, a peer adversary who has similar military capabilities because your opportunities are going to be far fewer and far between to strike without a risk of being hit back. And so when you strike, you have to take your opportunity to do it hard. I do think there's some logic to that. I think that's right. And the law of armed conflict does account for that. You know, if you have a greater military need, law of armed conflict doesn't prohibit civilian casualties. Civilian casualties are always going to be part of U.S. military operations, sadly. But the, the goal is to make it no more a part than it has to be to accomplish what people see as legitimate military objectives. I think the critique is a little misplaced, though, because even in low-intensity conflict, we really haven't seen this effectively made a priority. Um, so even if that's just the one place where you actually want to see progress, we've seen really different approaches across administrations, across areas of conflict against historical conflicts with very different outcomes. Uh, and so even some systemization could really help there. And, you know, there is an argument and they actually, uh, General Austin addresses this specifically in the kind of report saying, we think these principles can be scaled up. Yeah, they're going to have to adapt it to a pure conflict sort of situation, but that doesn't mean you neglect them. A lot of these processes, decisions can be adjusted. I do think there's a challenge there and there's a space for more work on that saying, how can we implement these so that even in a much more dire, time-sensitive, major conflict with the peer adversary, can we ensure they're actually operationalized? That's something we're going to have to think about as we re-enter this era of peer conflict, something I've been thinking a lot about recently. But I agree that I with you know, General Austin, I don't think that means they're irrelevant. Uh, I think there are ways that you can pull a lot of lessons from our asymmetric warfare period we've been in the last 20 years and bring that to the next conflict. All that said, I don't think it's a coincidence that this is finally getting rolled out after being talked about for 15, 20 years to some extent. We saw an effort at it in the Obama administration that didn't go too far. We saw it get wound back by the Trump administration who really wanted to make progress in Syria and in Afghanistan and winding down those military conflicts and and tacitly but effectively said, we're willing to accept more civilian casualties as a trade-off for that. And this is the first time we've seen this systematic an effort. I think part of that is because of this historical moment in that the Biden administration doesn't see itself as really committed to any of these conflicts anymore. All we're doing is very limited strategic over-the-horizon strikes. That's it's definitely its focus of military activities in these asymmetric conflicts. We're not in Afghanistan. We're limited in our conflicts in Syria, as we've seen the last few weeks. It's still there, but it's not the scale that we've had in Afghanistan and Iraq in the past. So I don't think it's a coincidence. This is a moment where it's a lot easier to get people on board to implement something like this. Uh, the question then, I think, again, is how do you institutionalize it so that when you have a less opportune moment in the future, people still stick with it? One thing that I had in mind while reading this report was the fact that um, if I'm, I'm looking at data from Air Wars, the number of reported strikes from the Biden administration is like way, way, way down from the previous administrations, both Obama and Trump. I'm curious, Scott, whether you have any sense of whether the fact that the military is clearly taking this issue of civilian casualties seriously and, and attempting to implement this new program, whether there's any overlap between that and the fact that the amount of drone strikes seems to have fallen or whether I'm conflating two different things. No, I think that's a really good observation. I don't think it's a coincidence. In fact, I think that's a reflection of the same sort of historical moment uh, and change of priorities we're seeing with the Biden administration. Um, you know, the Obama administration, I don't think, came into office thinking it was going to stay committed to the asymmetric conflicts that uh, it inherited from the Bush administration. But we saw it try and do a push and a surge in Afghanistan to try and, uh, you know, stabilize the situation there enough to facilitate U.S. withdrawal 
not successfully, at least by the end of the Obama administration, although it arguably played a role several years later. Um, we saw it in Iraq initially withdraw, then quickly get sucked back in through the counter-ISIS offensive, which was a major priority for its last few years in office, and a, a conflict that really you saw a lot of these questions come to the fore because ISIS forces were so intertwined with civilian populations and major urban centers. And so you, you saw a real commitment by the Obama administration to those conflicts. The Trump administration, I think, was less politically committed to those conflicts, but there was a real priority on trying to enter them on a strong footing, to put it kindly. And I think they really, uh, President Trump seemed intent on both ending those conflicts and getting out, making several efforts to withdraw and push towards withdrawal, but not wanting to seem weak while doing it. And the approach for doing that was to up the tempo of strikes, to put more more military pressure on opposing forces. Uh, and that came at the cost of civilian casualties. That's pretty well documented at this point. And I think knowingly, I think people understood that was going to be the trade-off and that's the decision they made. And now the Biden folks are of a different priority because they don't they, for better or for worse, having withdrawn from Afghanistan, limited conflict in Iraq, and not having any other major asymmetrical conflict. Again, you have Somalia, you have Syria still happening, Yemen a little bit, but nothing major. I think they're in a position where they can drop those drone strikes and therefore adopt much more restrictive approaches to how they approach these things. And that's that might be a very good overdue historical moment to really sit back and think about how we handle these issues. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, one thing to keep in mind here too is just the... Uh the different personalities of the commander in chief, so to speak. And I, I don't want to reduce everything down to the guy in charge, um, but I do think it's useful to keep in mind. So there's a really striking story that's always stayed with me. Um, I think from the New York Times about a conversation that Trump had when he uh, went to the CIA early in his presidency. So this is concerning a CIA strike, not a military strike, obviously distinct, but uh, he was shown footage from a, a predator drone and the agency kind of shows him, look, you know, we're, we're able to wait um, until this guy's family leaves his house before we take the strike where, you know, we're putting a lot of energy into trying to mitigate civilian casualties. And Trump's response was, according to the Times, why did you wait um, and I do think that, you know, obviously, as you've pointed out, Scott, that these are big institutional questions, you know, with something like the Pentagon, that's a huge ship to turn around. It's going to take a lot of institutional energy. It's going to take a lot of hiring and commitment. But it is, at the end of the day, hard for me not to keep in mind the fact that this kind of rethink is happening, not only after an administration that, as you point out, had a kind of a strategic objective about how it was going to conduct these conflicts, but also also under the leadership of someone who explicitly did not care and in some ways seemed to be actually affirmatively delighted by civilian harm. So obviously the, the person at the helm of this is uh, Defense Secretary Austin, not, not Biden, who I don't think has weighed in on it one way or another, but it is hard for me uh, not to think about that. And I'll say just to, to add on there, I mean, I think that's the real reason why you need to see Congress take action on this. Um, the plan does lay out that they're going to go to Congress and ask for funding and maybe statutory authorities. I need to go back and reread that to set up this center in the Defense Department. I think it's the Civilian Casualty Center for Excellence is what they call it, something so the Civilian Protection Center for Excellence. It is going to be involved in DOD. Often DOD offices like this, there is like a degree of congressional involvement in setting up certain major offices. You think of like certain assistant secretary for like SOLEC, stuff like that. There's statutory authorities that are, if I recall correctly, behind those offices. And you might see that here. That's actually really important in a case like this because this remains a priority for career people and for future political appointees. If you have people in the building really raising these concerns and institutionally stationed to raise these concerns, you know, throughout the 
defense department apparatus, civilian and military side. Without that, it might be a political priority, but it becomes much easier to roll back in the future if it's not underlied by statutory authority that a future president can't disregard that easily or tied to funding that's committed past their term in office. This plan that you know has come forward, it only goes, it goes till 2025, 2026 before it's even fully implemented. Actually training the people and getting the center fully up and running, I'm sure will take many years further out than that. So it needs bipartisan commitment and it needs institutional commitment beyond the Biden administration itself. I think that's actually the next big front for advocates, I suspect, is that we're going to see them really engaging armed services committees in the Congress to try and get parts of this institutionalized in NDAAs and other legislation over the next few years. Well, we will have to leave the conversation there for now, but this would not be rational security if we did not give you some object lessons to ponder until we are back in your ears next week. Alan, let me hand it over to you for our first object lesson. So I was in Miami this weekend uh, for my grandmother's 90th birthday. So get a grandma. And Miami, you know, lovely, very humid, too humid, too humid and too hot. But the ocean was, was very pretty. But the point is, because I was in Miami, obviously I went to eat really, 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 really good Cuban food. And the, my first meal of the weekend was uh, a fantastic, uh, at Sazon in North Beach, uh, North Miami Beach, a fantastic arroz con pollo, uh, the best I've ever had. And it inspired me to see if I could make my own decent arroz con pollo. And thankfully, as it always does, America's Test Kitchen came to my rescue. They have a phenomenal, phenomenal recipe. Uh, which which we will link to, obviously. You know, the key, as it turns out, is to really make your, really make a good sofrito, right? Get your cubanelle pepper, a lot of garlic, a lot of cilantro, blitz it up. Oh, and then you get this this sauce out of it. It's fantastic, really. It's like an amazing, amazing thing. Made it yesterday. Everyone liked it. The kid liked it. So that's my object lesson. Uh, If you can't go to Miami and eat arroz con pollo, make your own. It's not that hard. A good sofrito is almost always the secret. That's my policy at this point. It is where I start with almost everything I cook, and I never regret it. Quinta, what do you have for us this week? Well, I have a question. Do we want a nerdy object lesson, or which is also fun, or an object lesson that is just fun? Give us both. You can, you can double up. How about for variety's <laughs> sake, a depressing object lesson? <laughs> <laughs> They're both kind of... Depressing in a way. So, okay, two two object lessons. Uh, the first is the Twitter account at Watergate Day of, uh, which is live tweeting the events of the Watergate scandal as they happened 50 years ago. It is totally delightful. I love it. It is especially hilarious to follow in your Twitter feed if you, like me, follow a lot of journalists who are covering the various Trump investigations because sometimes you'll just see a little tweet about someone testifying before the grand jury and it's not you know mark meadows or anything <laughs> like that it's like donald segretti or howard hunt it's so fun um unfortunately because it is going day by day and it is only 1972 in that watergate day of world we have a long way to go before we get to the really good stuff but i highly recommend it uh the second uh, fun object lesson is that there is a new mountain goats album They are my favorite band, highly recommended. It is called Bleed Out, and it is inspired by action movies. There is a track that is called Wage Wars, Get Rich, Die Handsome, um, and that is the entirety of the chorus. Uh, It is full of bangers. I highly recommend listening to it while you do chores because it will make your chores feel 5,000% more awesome. 
That is phenomenal. Mountain Goes, also one of my absolute favorite bands, have done private prior concept albums based on Dungeons and Dragons campaigns, among other things. It is a phenomenal group. Uh, Goths so definitely also. Worth checking out. Also, not just a great band, but a wonderful animal too. I just I want to hear it for the OG True. Mountain they Goat, which is to say heights. the Mountain Goat. Yeah, it's fantastic. I've actually read very good things. John Darnell is a novelist. I think he came out with a novel last year that got really, really well regarded. Devil House, I, yeah. I think it I was have very him, good. I have my Kindle, but I have not read it yet. But Highly recommended. Someday soon. Excellent. Excellent. John Darnielle, you're getting the triple duty on this one. Congratulations. The ultimate triple crown here from Rational Security. Well, for my object lesson, uh, I'm going to go in a different direction. My co-hosts already know I had a very difficult night last night. I have a toddler who decided not to go to sleep till four in the morning. He sleeps, by the way, like he's one of the three stooges, meaning he just spins around on his side, kicking everything in all directions. Mine does that too. Does he, does he, does he elevate his butt? Because mine is going through like a real his butt's just push. up in the air. So in the and air. And then he kicks out. And like <laughs> I told my wife, my wife had an important meeting early this morning. So I was like, you go sleep in the guest room in the basement. I'll take care of the kid who doesn't want to sleep. So he's just kicking me in the face to like four, four, three. 30 in the morning. And meanwhile, I've triggered some horrible allergic reaction. I have like this terrible cold out of nowhere uh, from dusting or doing something in my house that I have not been able to shake all day. So I've had a terrible, terrible day. And that's why Scott's object lesson is a cocktail. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, it is something that picked me up even more than a cocktail because I got up this morning. I got up before my son got up. I had like 20 minutes to just sit in bed and regret my existence. And I opened up my phone and started poking around on Twitter and I saw something that brightened me up more than I should ever expect. And that is the trailer for the movie Weird, the Al Yankovic story. If you don't think you're yes. a weird Al Yankovic fan, you're wrong. And I didn't think I was for the longest time. I associated weird Al Yankovic and his like joke songs with like the jerky boys and crank anchors and kind of like prank juvenile humor. I was never, I'm still not a big song satire person. Uh, like I will listen to it and be like, ha, huh, that's funny. I don't need to listen to the whole three minute song. But really, Amish Paradise doesn't do it for you. I, I get it. I'm like through the first chorus, I'm like, oh, I get it. Okay, that's great. And then I and then I kind of lose interest. I'll be completely honest. But he is just such an interesting guy. He made all these appearances on one of my favorite podcasts that became a TV show briefly. And now he's doing it just a podcast comedy, Bang Bang. Um, and I saw when I was like 13 or 14 his movie UHF, which is a brilliant, if super super weird movie uh, that he made in the late 80s. And he is just such a culturally unique, phenomenally interesting guy. And he is continue this into authorizing this biopic that is so absurd. It's wonderful. It involves him uh, basically having an affair with Madonna that I assume, with they name her Madonna, she says, oh yeah, I'm Madonna, uh, in exchange for him doing a satire of her song, Like a Virgin. Uh, and then I assume this is going to be a bit that she got. he got away with being like, oh, Madonna won't sue us if we only make fun of her for like five minutes. In fact, he, she's like a character through the whole movie, as far as I can tell, because she's in all these scenes in this trailer. At some point, he puts a cigarette out on his assistant. He's like doing all these crazy rock star things while, while rocking a polka. Uh, and it's all with uh, Harry Potter himself as the lead playing Weird Al, who is so good. I think he's such an absurd. He's embraced the absurdity uh, of acting and uh, absurd roles that are so interesting. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe, has, I should say. And it's just like phenomenal. And so I'm so excited for this movie. I have not gone to see a movie in the theater since the pandemic ended. This may be the one I go and see in the theater. I'm that excited about it. Um, so I encourage you all, check out the trailer for Weird. It will brighten up your day or anything else. And I will say, I hear Weird Al Yankovic is doing a tour in promotion of the movie. It is a only unpopular songs tour where they're only playing actual rock songs he and his band wrote. They're not doing any of the satire songs. They're not doing anything else. They actually like wrote a bunch of rock songs that occasionally appear on their albums that are genuinely pretty cool and good and worth checking out. And now I want to go see him live because that's actually the part of Weird Al I'm interested in. So if anybody in the DC area wants to go see Weird Al, hit me up. 
maybe we'll get like a rational security uh you know field trip going i will fly to dc to go to a weird al concert with you oh, maybe this we may have to do this this would be 100 percent worth it i just want to see the weird this this the unpopular <laughs> Al concert i don't need to see the other ones but the unpopular one i'm very excited about uh well with that little burst of weird that brings us to the end of this week's episode Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RETL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Alan and Quinta, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Till then, au revoir! Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.